welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, I'm covering the news to know for the week of December 9th. Got five articles. I actually thought it was a little bit of a slow news week. But let's cover some of these. The first article comes out of Health IT Outcomes, and it was written on December 6th by Andy Aroditis, A-R-O-D-I-T-I-S. Anyway, I believe he's associated with a vendor, uh, but the concept of the article is still worth mentioning here. Um, The Patient Safety Risks of EHR Errors. That's the title. Here's a few lines. With increased use of technology and relatively every aspect of healthcare, subsequent risk imposed on patient safety is only expected to grow. Take, for example, a recent incident at Virtua Our Ladies of Lourdes Hospital in New Jersey. On November 18th, a 51-year-old patient underwent a successful kidney transplant. However, the kidney was supposed to go to another patient that had the same name and was of similar age. Fortunately, the intended patient received a successful transplant six days later, and both individuals are doing well. But these stories are not new and sadly not uncommon. And the author goes on to quote some numbers here, one of which is that 9% of EHR-related errors led to temporary or permanent harm and to deaths. The author goes on to say here that without consistently and correctly matching individuals to their data to enable a complete record of one's health history, patients will continue to suffer the consequences. Master patient indexes within EHRs remain exceedingly limited in their ability to compare and link records from external sources, especially those outside the network. According to a report by Pew Charitable Trusts released last year, EHR match rates within facilities are as low as 80% meaning that one in five patients may not be completely matched to his or her record. When exchanging records with outside facilities, the number could be as low as 50%, even when those outside organizations are running the same vendor EHR. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but we're on Epic and I've tried to reach out to other Epic organizations and I've got all the right demographic information and I'm not getting a match but I know that the patient was there it's a little frustrating Uh, I can see the the author's point here one more paragraph according to a 2018 survey by black book research hospitals without an enterprise master patient index in place for managing patient identification reported duplicate record rates of 18% within their organization and 24% when exchanging records out of network This is because the HRs were designed for a single vendor-based environment and lack the sophisticated algorithms for linking data across various sources and settings of care. The absence of just a single medication in an individual's medical record can greatly impact a decision made by a clinician. I don't know about that, but maybe. Anyway, I, I think you get the gist of the article. I think that the authors were right. Master Patient Index is a great thing to have. I think a national health identifier, which seems to be getting some traction in Congress now, as it had been dead for two decades, but that concept of everyone having 
a number that identifies them correctly and accurately for healthcare purposes only, that's not your social security number, may really help patient safety and reduce the risk of EHR errors. That transplant story there, that's scary. I don't like that one at all. All right, next article. Out of Healthcare IT News by Mike Milliard, December 2nd. This is the support health for compliance with new CMS rule. Change Healthcare unveiled its new CareSelect Imaging Open Access Project, which offers no fee access to qualified clinical decision support to help healthcare providers comply with the forthcoming Protecting Access to Medicare Act. Under PAMA, effective January 1, 2020, CMS will require that physicians check with a CMS-approved decision support mechanism before ordering advanced imaging exams for Medicare fee-for-service patients. And to refresh your memory, that is MRI, CT, PET scan, and nuclear medicine. Change Healthcare says CareSelect Imaging Open Access offers one of these clinical decision support mechanisms. Uh, they go on to talk about themselves for a little bit more, but um, wrong answer. This is not the solution to this issue. You're asking doctors to leave their EHR, go to a portal, enter in information in order to generate the clinical decision support that they need. And that's downright unfriendly. So sorry, Change Healthcare. I know you're all in love with your care select imaging stuff, but as a provider, not so much. Next. This one out of Health IT Outcomes, and it's the six powerful benefits of e-prescribing by Kayla Matthews. And I highlight this article because I'm having some trouble getting my emergency department physicians to do e-prescribing. And so here are the six powerful benefits. Number one, reduces pharmacist error. Number two, instant clinical alerts, which I'm not sure that doctors are going to necessarily jump up and down about. But yes, that is true. If you are e-prescribing and you're doing something wrong, you'll get immediate feedback as opposed to paper. Um, prescription fulfillment tracking. E-prescription systems can help doctors track whether or not patients have picked up their next refill. In this way, these systems can let clinicians know that people are staying on top of their medication. But what they don't mention is that doctors actually really don't want to get a message every single time a patient goes to refill their medication. So I'm not quite sure the value's there, but I get their point. Increased prescription efficiency. Handwriting prescriptions can be both tedious and costly in terms of time spent, as they often need to be individually drawn up and authorized. With some e-prescription systems, clinicians can automatically refill dozens of prescriptions at the same time, allowing them to review them at the same time. This can both increase efficiency and reduce the prescription error rate. Again, I'm not sure about this signing multiple prescriptions at one time thing. Yes, I know it's possible in our EHR. I don't usually recommend that workflow from a safety standpoint. Uh, number five, it says it can reduce readmissions. I'm not there on that one, but they say so. And then cost savings. The benefits of e-prescriptions include improved outcomes, increased efficiency, and reduced patient visits. And they go on to say that the amount of money saved may even increase in the future as e-prescription systems advance 
and as pharmacies grow more accustomed to handling them. I don't know about those six. I think they're reasonable, but the number one reason that they don't mention is quite simply safety, that the patients can't tamper with it, they don't lose it, and the, the pharmacists do get a script that they can understand. So uh, I am trying to get my emergency room physicians to switch over, and it's actually not so much their resistance to it, it's that the preference list have all of their medicines set to print. And it takes resources to get in there with every doctor and change this workflow. And that costs time and money, and it's a challenge. But anyway, uh, let's jump to the next article. This one out of EHR Intelligence. And it was written on December 5th by Christopher Jason. Visual aid in the EHR cuts duplicative orders and reduces clinician burnout. Researchers found that a visual aid in the EHR led to a 49% and 40% decrease in unintentional duplicate orders for lab tests and radiology tests, respectively, including fewer clicks for clinicians. And this one was published in JAMA Network Open. Um, there, overall, the study of nearly 185,000 patients proved that a passive visual aid that guides the clinician's eyes to the correct action is a valuable substitute to an interruptive alert that tells the clinician that they have made an error. Prior to the implementation of this simple visual aid, the disruptive alerts generally occurred after the clinician completed the process of ordering a test or medication. Instead of the interruptive alert that occurred after the running process, researchers set up an EHR visual aid that placed a simple red highlight around the checkbox of an order, signifying that the test or medication was a duplicate. Uh, researchers observed significantly lessened likelihood for physician burnout when the EHR was more usable. With each one percentage point increase in EHR usability score, the EHR the researchers observed a 3% lower odds of physician burnout. So my commentary on this, I think uh, that's great. I'm trying to do more what we call nudges rather than these invasive alerts. If I can put the right thing in the right place or just catch your eye in the right way, fantastic. I have to say, though, that inline non-invasive alerts, we are seeing a interaction rate of less than 1% in our primary care clinics reacting on preventative measures through the clinical decision support tool. Now that doesn't mean they're, they don't see it and place it somewhere outside of the tool, but non-invasive alerts are not getting huge traction, but I really like this one. It's different than those inline alerts. You're, you're calling attention to an issue and you're not asking the, the doctor that they have to address it, but sure makes it easy for them right then and there before they've signed it, they can easily click the remove button. Really like this article. And I think it's very thought provoking about how we should be doing clinical decision support. Let's do this last one. This one comes out of uh, RevCycle Intelligence. I think it's the same magazine just with a different area of it. 90% of value-based payments in commercial sector are based still on fee-for-service. So this came out December 6, 2019 from Jacqueline LaPointe. The proportion of value-based payments from the commercial sector to physicians and hospitals increased from 10.9% in 2012 to 53% in 2017. However, an overwhelming majority 
of those alternative payments are still based on the fee-for-service foundation, and they have some kind of value-based patient uh, payment modifier on them, some payment for quality or cost reduction. Uh, they continue on here. Uh, they're talking about a scorecard that comes from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Analyzed data between 2012 and 2017, it revealed little progress with the implementation of value-based payments that will likely transform healthcare. The scorecard showed that 90% of value-based payments as of 2017 were based on fee-for-service, while just 6% of the total dollars stemmed from an alternative payment model that put downside financial risk on providers. Alternative payment models with downside risk have been sparse in the commercial sector. The scorecard showed that the proportion of total dollars flowing through one of these models has remained relatively stable since 2012. Instead, payers and providers have been investing in pay for performance. They also have some shared savings arrangements and the bundled payments model has remained pretty flat since 2012. Slow implementation rates in the commercial sector may be due to lackluster quality and cost improvements. The scorecard found small improvements between 2013 and 2017 in the percent of commercially insured patients with diabetes who had their blood sugar measured with hemoglobin A1C tests. They also noticed the percent of patients given instructions on how to recover at home increased from 85% to 87%. And the percent of children receiving recommended vaccines increased from 68.4% to 70.4%. Really underwhelming. So what does a CMIO or provider informaticist need to know about this? Because the tools that we like and want to install have upfront costs that are significant. And to do population health right, to succeed in value-based care, you usually need to invest millions and millions of dollars in tools that allow population health to happen, including registries, including clinical decision support tools, and you need uh, real-time electronic prescription benefit information, and you need uh, to be able to move data to an HIE in and out and make sense of that data and aggregate it and have a kind of constant contact or, or some kind of tool that does automated outreach to help close uh, gap, uh, gaps in care. And the list goes on. There are many, many tools that we like to have in order to be successful in this, including all the analytics and then artificial intelligence tools that go with this. And yet we're not seeing the value-based payments happening, which would, which would really make these tools necessary. So I think they're spot on when they say that the, there's slow implementation rates happening in value-based care because the providers are not really willing to accept this risk because they don't have the tools and they're not, the health systems aren't willing to invest in the tools until they're forced to with more value-based payments. So kind of a catch-22 and I think it will take legislation to really change the system and in the meantime, we're going to remain in the fee-for-service world. So if you're thinking about your strategic plan over the next two to three years, everyone says, yes, focus on, on value-based care. Sure, if that's what's really prominent in your market. But for most of us, we're still focusing on fee-for-service and our clinical decision support tools that, that are really focused around that and not around value-based care. And I think... We'll wrap it up there for the week. 
Um, stay tuned for later this week. I've got Dr. Eric Lee. We're going to be talking about some of the challenges with EHR implementation, and he's got some really good experience with this. So if you're have recently done or plan to go through an EHR implementation, you're changing systems, perhaps converting over some practices from paper, all good uh, pieces of, of real practical knowledge to, to hang on to. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.